morning from Acts 21, the first 14 verses. Acts 21. And when it came about that we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was going to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit to not set foot in Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he had heard this, when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for your presence with us and for the ministry that you've given us by your Spirit to teach us and to lead us into all that is true. We want you, God, to be magnified in our hearts and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that you would be truly honored and glorified. So, God, we pray that, that again, that your word would just be effective and powerful in our lives to bring us into greater likeness to yourself, that you would receive the honor and glory, God, that you are worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good to see you all today. Um, We're a little thinner today than we've been. And just so that you know, we did put out a prayer net um, or a prayer chain. We put a a notice out that there are quite a few folks in the church that are feeling a little under the weather. Um, Some have have had fevers. Some have just had colds with no fever. And there have been a a very small group, um, two, three four, I think, at the most, who have tested positive for COVID. Not at the same time, over the last two weeks. Um, To my knowledge, nobody has been in the church with any symptoms, and it's only been after being in church that there have been, like I said, two or three individuals that have tested positive for COVID, and they're all doing um, well, from what I understand. So out of an abundance of caution, um, there are folks that are just saying, we don't want to expose anybody to anything, and so if we've got a cold, we're staying home. If we've got a fever, we're staying home and just wanting to be careful. So we appreciate that. Everybody's acting responsibly, as we've asked. And, um, and there are others who 
feel that they are in a high-risk category, either because of their age or they have comorbidities of some kind, and they're staying home too just to, out of an abundance of caution. And that's exactly what we you know, have wanted to happen. We want to continue to gather, but we want to be responsible and to not, um, you know, for everybody to assume the risk that they are comfortable with assuming. And because um, and the last thing we want to do is just cancel services. And so we're really trusting for each person to, to take responsibility for their health and, and not expose others to anything unnecessarily. And everybody's doing that, so we're grateful. So I would hope and imagine that um, next week or soon after we'll be packed again like we've been, and we're thankful for that. But it's not about the numbers. We're glad we've got the media that we can do the live streaming, um, but it's greater to be in person than it is to be looking at a camera or a television screen or computer screen, whatever they're doing at home, sitting there in their pajamas drinking their coffee. Rick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the camera, because Rick, Rick, Rick Thompson and Missy, they know what, they're, what I'm talking about. Okay. So this portion of scripture here, um, it is introducing us to one of the better known parts of Acts, where Paul is going to end up being um, arrested by the Romans, and he's going to spend really the rest of the books, book of Acts in Roman imprisonment. When this book ends, he's still being in prison, but he's in Rome, and we don't get the rest of the story, which we believe that he was eventually would have been released from prison, made another um, journey, and then was arrested again and was beheaded. But Acts ends with Paul being arrested, and, and then so the rest of this book is about his imprisonment. And so the events leading up to this are, are significant. And it's one of those portions of Scripture where I'm thankful that it's here, but we kind of wish that maybe more clarity and more answers had been given because one of the biggest things that we all str struggle with in life is, is the Spirit's leading and, and knowing how God is leading and what exactly He's telling us to do, and especially when other Christians are telling us what the Spirit is telling us to do. <laughs> and that's where Paul's at. He's got everybody telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. But he personally feels God is saying, go to Jerusalem. And so that was a real tension point. It had to be for Paul, and he expresses that here. He says, you're breaking my heart, all of you saying, crying and weeping and telling me don't go. And so this was, this was a difficult time for Paul. But we know that, that everywhere he went in his, in his journey toward Jerusalem, every stop, people were saying, don't go. And he went anyway. If you, if you hop back to chapter 20, and look where it says here in verse 22. Um, actually, I need to go back further. Um, verse 21, he says, Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And says, And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me but I do not consider my life of any count as dear to myself in order that I may finish um, my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. So this is very clear in the previous chapter that he is bound in spirit. He truly believes that God is leading him to Jerusalem and this is the course that he is on. And nonetheless, all these other people are saying, don't do it, don't do it. I only know one other portion of scripture where somebody was on a course of action 
and everybody and God had talked to everybody else as well as that individual about what was about to happen. And that was when Elijah was about to be raptured up to heaven in, um, in 2 Kings. And he was at Bethel, and then he was at Jericho, then he was down at the Jordan River. And every place he went, there were prophets that came up and said to Elisha, do you realize what's going to happen today? And he goes, yes, I know what's going to happen. Be quiet. And so Elisha knew, Elijah knew, all the prophets knew that that was the day that Elijah was going to be taken up to heaven. So why did God do that? Why did God tell everybody what was going on? And I don't know, but he did. And now God is telling everybody that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to face a hard time. So we have to believe that this wasn't just for Paul. And it wasn't just for Elijah. That there was a, God wanted everybody involved with this. And, and so then Paul is interpreting the warning as simply warnings. That God is preparing him for what he's going to face. Everybody else is interpreting it as he shouldn't go, which is interesting. And so the believers are saying, if God's warning you about what's going to happen, then God is telling you, don't go. So that's how they're seeing this. Paul's saying, God's warning me, but God is not forbidding me. God is not opposed to me going. God is compelling me to go. So that's where we're at with this passage, and it's, it's, it presents some issues. And so the first thing, though, is if we come back to what we just read, chapter 21, verse 4, and after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, that's different than chapter 20. Paul says, everywhere I go, I'm being warned. But now, chapter 21, these Christians are saying, don't go. Whoa, and he goes anywhere, anyway. So what are we to do with that? Well, there are th several possibilities. One is that perhaps this is Luke's interpretation that Paul was not to go and not the way Paul was seeing it. This is maybe the interpretation of these Christians who are thinking Paul should not go because the Spirit is saying this is what's going to happen. Maybe they are, by the Spirit, actually saying, do not go. And Paul is being disobedient and headstrong. Or maybe Paul was free to go or not go, according to his own understanding of what God was trying to communicate to him. Maybe he got it wrong. But I think, as the majority of, of, of commentaries would say, not all of them by any means, but the majority would say, these believers here in verse 4 are saying too much. That they are, not, they are putting a spin on the warning and making it, rather than a forewarning, a forbidding. And they say that because of what we read in chapter 20, where Paul is saying, everywhere I go, that I am being warned of what's going to happen. And now these guys are going, maybe they're taking it one step further. But whatever was happening here, Paul felt the freedom to not do what these people were saying. That he believed that God was saying to him, go to Jerusalem. Now, we live in an interesting time, and I'm going to spend some time talking about prophecy in a second here. But when it comes down to it, 
on, on things that are not explicitly stated in Scripture, okay? like whether or not Paul should go to Jerusalem, like what kind of car you should buy, what kind of, which college you should go to, who you should marry. Important decisions, but not explicitly stated in Scripture. And those kinds of matters, no matter how strongly somebody else may feel that God is speaking to them about what you should do, it's your responsibility. And you have to do what you believe God is telling you what to do. Because we can, any of us, get it wrong when it comes to interpreting what we believe the Spirit is saying to us. And ultimately, I am held responsible before God for my decisions. I need to, to seek the Lord and do what I believe God is telling me to do, and I can't put that responsibility on someone else. And so we should be very careful in telling somebody else what God's plan is for their life when it comes to something that is not explicitly stated in Scripture. It's their business. God may want us to maybe voc vocalize our opinion, but we need to hold it loosely because it's their responsibility, not ours, and they will be held responsible for the decision they make. So then, interesting thing comes about. Paul goes to um, Caesarea. He stays in the house of Philip. We don't, we, aren't know, we don't know why we're told that Philip had four daughters who were all prophetesses, but God bypasses those girls and didn't use them, and he brings Agabus down from Jerusalem, and Agabus is the same prophet who had earlier prophesied that there would be a worldwide famine. And he had gone to, to Antioch to make that prophecy, as I recall. And so now he makes another prophecy. And this is not concerning the world, but concerning one man, Paul, verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way... The, the man who owns this belt um, and will be delivered up into the, into the hands of the Gentiles. And I'm sorry, I, my eyes just went fuzzy on me. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Okay. Interesting thing. He doesn't say, and this is, this is Luke's being very emphatic here. This guy is a prophet. He's been right before. And now he's speaking directly by the Spirit to Peter, I'm sorry, to Paul, and saying, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, he doesn't say, don't go. He's just saying, this is what's going to happen when you do go. And once again, the church takes it that Paul is saying, the warning means don't go. And Paul's saying, I'm not taking it that way. Verse 13. What, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am, not, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And at, at that point, they stopped resisting and said, Lord's will be done. Okay. Knowing God's will. The, the Spirit, no doubt, was repeatedly telling Paul what was going to happen to him. And Paul felt the Spirit was not forbidding him. Paul felt just the opposite. The Spirit was warning him, preparing him, but urging him, go to Jerusalem. Paul felt the freedom 
to not follow the advice of the, of the body because it is not a biblical matter, not something explicitly said in Scripture. And in non-biblical matters, there is freedom. And the body of Christ has no authority over somebody else and the decisions they're making. Elders don't. The body of Christ doesn't. We're ex we exceed our authority on non-biblical matters when we try to tell people, this is what God's told me you must do. That's going beyond the authority that God has given the body. It is clear in this passage that the early church believed that God is still giving guidance in everyday non-biblical issues. And I believe God is still doing that. Yes, Acts is a transitional book, but I think this is one of the things that is not being left behind in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was guiding people in everyday decisions. In the book of Acts, God is guiding people in everyday decisions. And I believe that God is still guiding people in everyday decisions today. I've made reference to this before. It was very um, impactful for me at the time when I was at, at in, in seminary. Um, Gary Friesen had just written his book, Decision Making in the Will of God, and it took the Dallas Seminary campus by storm. It was the most discussed topic going on at the time. In fact, it was so discussed that in the annual um, staff retreat that all the faculty had, faculty staff retreat, they discussed that book on their retreat, and then they decided to good-naturedly play a volleyball game with on one team was the anti-Gary Friesen people, and the other was the pro-Gary Friesen people. And if you don't recall, that book said, basically, that God does not have a specific will for you when it comes to non-biblical things, like who you're going to marry, who you're going to go to church, I mean, what church to choose, what college to go to. He says, as long as you operate within the sphere of what is moral and what is good and what is generally pleasing to God, then you can do whatever you want. So in other words, as long as you marry a Christian, God doesn't care what Christian you marry. And so that kind of thing. And so they played a volleyball game. Well, guess who won? The pro-Gary Friesen people won. And I thought, well, that's disappointing because I would have been playing on the other side that God has a specific will for our lives. And he does, is concerned about the day-to-day -day decisions that we make. So then the professor who actually told us in class about the volleyball game and that the ones that, that believed that Friesen was correct, that they won the game, he at the end added this little nugget. The team that lost was made up of all the old professors. And I thought settles it for me, that I'll go with them every time. And one of those old guys, Dwight Pentecost, said in class one time on this subject, and I like things simple because I'm a simple guy, he says, it just seems to me that if God is concerned with working all things together for good, Romans 8, 28, then God must be concerned with all things. And I go, that's, I like that. If God is concerned with working all things together for good, then God must be concerned with all things. I can handle that. 
I can accept that. And that's what I see. I think that's, this is one of those passages that there is nobody from the time Paul set his face to go to Jerusalem, there is nobody who's thinking that this is not a matter where you can know whether it's God's will to make this trip or not. It's just a trip. And yet everybody, with no exception from what we can see, is, is on the same page. They disagree on what Paul should do, but they all agree that you can know God's will about whether to take a trip or not. I think that's significant. So I'm going to steal from Russell Kelfer. I guess it's not stealing if you give credit. Russell's with the Lord, and um, I don't think God's correcting him on this, but maybe he is, and we will all be corrected when we go to heaven. But Russell used to give a, a, a series on knowing God's will, and he, there's, they've compiled, his ministry has compiled a little booklet on it. It's excellent. And it starts with the basic premise that God's will will never violate an absolute of Scripture. In other words, God will not will for us to do something that is contrary to His character and His Word. So don't even think about it, don't pray about it, don't seek God on it if it violates an absolute of God's Word. You already know what God's will is. So assuming that the decisions that you're facing are not in violation of an absolute of God's Word, what should you do? You've got two what seem to be equally good options, and you don't know which one to choose. Russell said, there are five questions that you ought to ask, which will help you to determine the course of action to take. And all of these are based off of, thing, of important or things that we see in Scripture. The number one, will this decision diminish my walk with God? Will it work toward me knowing Him better? So how is this decision going to impact me spiritually? Is it going to diminish my walk with the Lord, or will it help me in my walk with the Lord? Second thing, which choice will best allow God to form His character in me? And remember, character is formed by trial, by tribulation. So many times... God's intent for us is not to spare us difficulty. Paul obviously sees that's what's happening here. That God wants to shape us and conform us to the image of Christ, and that can only take place through heavenly sandpaper. We have to go through trials, or we will never have the character of Christ developed in us. Third question, what will most honor the commitments that I am responsible for? Or in other words, which choice best honors those that I am responsible for? So you may not have anybody that you're responsible for, students at His Hill at this point, and so, but you will someday. But, but right now, that question probably doesn't apply to you a whole lot. But it could in the future, so you can jump ahead 20, 30 years. When you do have people you are responsible for, and you go, how is the decision you're making today going to impact those that you will in the future be responsible for. So that's a good thing to think about because and, and when you're, you're making the most important, the biggest decisions in your life between the time you're 20 and 30, unfortunately. That's just the way it is. You're going to decide where to go to school. You're going to decide what to do with your life. You're going to decide who to marry. All those decisions come flying at you during that decade of life and 
None of us are prepared for it. But one thing we should be thinking about is beyond ourselves. How does this potentially, the decisions I'm making, how does this potentially impact those that I will be responsible for later in life? A fourth question is, of the choices that I have to make, the decision between the two, two choices, which one will most honor those that I am responsible to right now? For example, my boss, my parents perhaps, if I'm under my parents' authority, other authorities. You know, the world says, just give your boss two, two weeks' notice and that's enough. Where is that in the Bible? The Bible says, honor those who are in authority over you. Not just your parents, but those who are in authority over you. Honor them. And so there are some times when you need to give your boss not two weeks' notice, but maybe two months' notice, maybe longer, because you know how long it's going to take your boss to find a suitable replacement and get that person trained. And they have invested so much time and money into you why would you not thank them by giving them all the time they need to find a replacement? I was asked one year to, to come back to his hill and be a summer camp counselor, and I was really agonizing over it and because I was sharing my faith every day where I was working, um, the gravel pit where the rim is, making asphalt. And, I, and, and, and so I just was wrestling with it. And then one day my, my boss came to me and says, what's going on? Why are you thinking about leaving? I hadn't said a word to anybody. And this guy wasn't a Christian. And I, and I said, how did you know? And he says, you've been thinking about this for two weeks. Well, here God is obviously working on this man's heart who doesn't even know the Lord. For two weeks I'd been agonizing over this. And the guy goes, for two weeks, you've been thinking about leaving. Man. And, I, and he goes, what's up? Somebody else offered you a job? And I go, well, not exactly. And I said, I've been, offered to, I've been asked to come back to work at this camp, his hill, as a camp counselor. How much are they going to pay you? And I said, $5 a week. And, he go, and, and I go, you're not going to understand this. And he goes, you're right, I'm not going to understand this. And, and I go, and if they're going to pay you five, $5 a week. And I go, but here's the deal. And that time I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. And I said, it's a decision for me between making money working here, and I appreciate working here, or making an eternal impact in the lives of children. And I know that I can make more of an eternal impact in those kids being at his hill than I can here. Because I had witnessed to every person I could witness to, and, 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 I, and I, at that moment I knew it's time to move on but I still needed to have this guy's permission and not just give him notice. And he said, you're right. I have no idea what you're talking about. But he said, I respect it, and I give you my blessing. He didn't say blessing, but he says, he says, I, I, he says you can leave and go back to that camp and come back at the end of the summer, and I will give you your job back with no loss of position or seniority. And he says, we would really like to keep you here for a long time. And I'm just going, only God could have done that. And I appreciate it, but I would have never seen that if I hadn't wanted in my heart to honor that man and not just give him my notice and walk away. And then finally, the fifth question is, which decision will best facilitate 
this sharing of my life message. Where would I best be for God's missionary work on planet Earth? Because we're not here for ourselves. We're here to make Jesus known. Now, I really wrestled with that fifth question before I went off to seminary. Because I'm going, four more years? Seemed like an eternity. It took me forever to get through college. And now I'm going to start over again? And I can't even get credit for what I did in college? What's the sense of this? And I got to Dallas Seminary, and I felt deceived, lied to. Because there was nothing in any of their printed material about a two-year master's degree. And this was before the internet and websites. It was only about their flagship program, the four-year Master of Theology. Nothing, not a word about the two-year degree. And so I get there and I find out there's a two-year degree. <laughs> what am I doing in the four-year degree? And so I switched and I thought, you know, I made the right decision. And then I went to work at a camp in North Carolina and I taught each week in the camp and and at the end of the week, during the closing program, I would have to give an, an overview of what I taught. And a couple of times, dads came up to me afterwards and said, can't tell you how much confidence it gives us to know that a Dallas Seminary student is teaching our kids in camp. And I was already thinking, I've made, I, for the wrong reason, I have switched to the two-year program. And with, with that word of encouragement that came to me a couple times in the summer, I felt like the Lord was saying, I knew there was a two-year program. You didn't know, need to know there was a two-year program. I wanted you to only know about the four-year program. Get back in the four-year program. And so I got back in the four-year program. And it was a huge step of faith. But I did it believing that God, at this time, four years of sitting in seminary, it was a time of preparing for sharing my life message. And so, therefore, it was a valid time. And I shouldn't just dismiss it as it's wasted time. But it was a preparation for a lifetime of, of sharing and teaching God's word. As Kelfer says, our singular, pur purpose, our singular purpose is to glorify God. Our most basic priorities in doing so are, number one, to be where we can know him more intimately, Number two, to be where we can be sandpapered into his likeness more perfectly. Number three, to be responsive to those for whom we are responsible. Number four, to be responsible to those to whom we are responsible. And number five, to be available to go where we are most needed to use the message of our lives, which God has given us um, to us as he has applied his grace to our spiritual, spiritual pilgrimage. So it's not all about feelings. Nothing on there about feelings. Nothing on there about peace. If you have a hard time making decisions, as I do, I've always agonized over them. I've had buyer's remorse with every decision I've ever made, <laughs> including getting married. And, um, and I, <laughs> Patsy knows that, and, I'm, and I shouldn't have. I knew I was marrying the right woman, and God has done nothing but confirm that to me for 35 years. And I, but I'm the kind of guy that second guesses every decision I make. And that's just me. 
And I, and I have to see that, and I have to face it. doesn't mean I've made the wrong decision because I'm second-guessing the decision I've made. And this is where we need to make sure we're operating biblically, that we're consistent with God's, what God's Word, that we've sought good advice, and we don't make decisions just based upon peace. Because if that's the basis for making the decision, and then we don't have peace after we've made the decision, we're going to think we made the wrong decision. Or if we do have peace when we make the decision, we're going to think we made the right decision when we could have made the wrong decision. The only reason we have peace is because we made a decision. Does that make sense? If you're all stressed out over the possibility of making a decision, making any decision is going to give you some measure of peace. But there's, I don't see really hardly a word in Scripture, if any, that says that decisions are based off peace. Paul did not have, I imagine, a whole lot of peace about going to Jerusalem. But he knew it was the right decision. You may not have peace about having chemotherapy or radiation for cancer because you know what's going to happen as a result of the chemotherapy and radiation. But you also know it's a choice that God wants you to make. So not every good decision comes with peace. Sometimes it comes with a real sense of foreboding of what's going to happen because of that decision. Now, you all still with me? Okay, good. Thank you for the... That's only one part of this, okay? The Spirit was repeatedly telling Paul about what was going to happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. Paul felt the freedom to not listen to what the people were saying when they said, don't go. Because ultimately, it's not their choice to make, it's his choice to make. And the church does not have authority over somebody else's life and non-biblical decisions. Decisions that are not straight from Scripture. Third thing we just looked at is that the assumption of the early church, and I believe it should be our assumption today as well, is that God is still in the business of of giving daily guidance to his children. We are sheep that are lost without a shepherd. And the business of the shepherd is to constantly be leading his sheep. And if you think you can get along in life without a shepherd, wait until you get older. (laughs) I mean, we are sheep, and we do not have the power of self-direction. I need a shepherd every single day in my life, and I'm thankful that I have one. Doesn't mean I make every decision, you know, right. I've made mistakes, but it's always been due to me and not to the shepherd. The shepherd promises that his sheep hear his voice, and he leads his sheep. Now I want to get into the subject of prophecy here, and and this is a big subject, but this seems like a good time to do it. And here, not only are all these other people, but this guy Agabus comes and gives a straightforward prophecy, a prophetic word to Paul. I grew up never hearing about prophecies. Now everybody hears about them. And I, I ask the students now each year at some point, I'll say, how many of you have had somebody prophesy over you? And in the past few years, it's been at least half the class. This year, it was only about a third of them or less that raised their hands. I just asked them the other day, how many have had somebody prophesy over you? And there were only, I think it was seven or eight that raised their hands out of 30 some odd. So less than half, less than a third. And that's why I never took math in college. (laughs) Barely got out of high school. 
Um, but we all know that there are people who basically make a living off of giving prophecies to others and churches that are all focused on giving prophets, prophecies to people. So a word about this. First, an observation about Agabus. In the details that he gave here, he was 100% wrong. You realize that? In the big picture, he was right. But in the details, completely wrong. Paul was not bound with his own belt. He was bound with two chains, not with a belt. And Paul was not handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. No. It was the Gentiles that came in and delivered Paul from the Jews because they were going to kill him. Now, the end result is Paul's a prisoner to the Romans. Agabus got that part right. But the details, 100% wrong. Now, that's interesting. Because in the Old Testament, from my understanding of, of, the, of the, 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 the requirements of a prophet, that he be 100% accurate in all that he said, Agabus deserves to be stoned. Wow. So something is different here. And then as we read on and study more fully about prophecy in the, Old, in the New Testament, you have to come to the conclusion. Prophecy in the New Testament is way different than in the Old Testament. So I'm going to not steal, borrow, and give credit to D.A. Carson, um, theologian that um, is, I, I like on a lot of things, not so much on other things, but here on prophecy, I think he does a wonderful job. So let me just read you some of the things here that he has to say. For Paul, the legitimate heirs and successors of Old Testament prophets, as far as their authority was concerned, was not New Testament prophets. So the equivalent of an Old Testament prophet was not a New Testament prophet, but it was an apostle. It was the apostles in the New Testament that carried the same weight, the same authority as Old Testament prophets, not New Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets, listen to this, were tested and approved, and people were morally bound to obey them. Does Paul feel bound to obey Agabus? Nope. Opposition to the Old Testament prophets was opposition to God. Error on their part resulted in death. Once approved, the Old Testament prophet was not subject to repeated checks. New Testament prophets, on the other hand, have each prophecy weighed and evaluated. 1 Corinthians 14. Every time a person stands up and prophesies, that prophecy is to be evaluated by the church. You don't see that in the Old Testament. Each prophecy was to, be, was to be evaluated as to its content and not simply rejected or accepted in its entirety. That's different from the Old Testament. A mixed quality to the prophecies is assumed. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, let the others pass judgment, it's the same word that's used of a woman sifting flour. It's, it's, it's to work through it and find out what's good and throw the rest away. That's how we're supposed to handle New Testament prophets, prophecies. There is no hint in the New Testament of excommunication of the prophet whose prophecy proved to be an error either in part or in the whole. 
The New Testament prophet's authority is placed by Paul under his own authority. Another point, the New Testament does not see prophets as a solution to apostolic succession. Prophets are never pointed to as guardians against false teaching. Scripture directs the church to the word of God, to the faith once and for all delivered for the determination of truth and error. It never directs the church to prophets. Another point, there is little evidence that New Testament prophets ever had the same clout or authority as apostles or Old Testament prophets. They cut a low profile. The Thessalonians had to be told to not treat prophecies with contempt. That's different than the Old Testament. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, actually had to advance prophecy over tongues because prophecy was cutting such a low profile in the New Testament church. In Acts, another point, prophecies are viewed as being from God but having less authority than Old Testament prophets. And then finally, because New Testament prophecy operates at a lower level than Old Testament prophecy, Paul can encourage women to pray and prophesy in public under certain constraints of 1 Corinthians 11, while at the same time forbidding them to exercise a teaching role over men or to evaluate the contents of the prophecies. So a woman cannot teach or exercise authority over man, but she can prophesy. Clearly, there's a difference here, and one is not the other, and one is cutting a lower profile, has less significance than the other. So I'm not going to read the rest of what, of what Carson says, but one of the points that he makes so well is that today it would be fair to say that as we understand, prophecy is, has little to nothing to do with foretelling the future. Really, it never has, even in the Old Testament. Much of what the, pro- pro- what the prophetic ministry was had nothing to do with foretelling the future. There are many prophets in the Old, Tes- Old Testament that do foretell the future, but most of the prophetic record in the Old Testament has nothing to do with the future. So you have to understand, every writer of the Old Testament was considered a prophet. That means Proverbs was written by a prophet, but there is nothing about the future in Proverbs, of the, all the psalms that we have, very few of them are prophetic. But all of them were written by a prophet. So the basic understanding of prophecy is that God is speaking to a person that he might speak through that person, right? And adding on to that something about the future is almost superfluous because that is not the basic definition. The basic definition of prophecy is that God has spoken to a person and God is speaking through a person. I think this is why in Acts chapter 2, remember going all the way back there? What what happened when they all were filled with the Spirit? They began to speak with tongues and prophesy. And he quotes, Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 and says, when the Spirit of God is poured out that both your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And what does that mean? We now, in Christ, have the birthright because of the Spirit of God living in us for God to speak to us and God to speak through us. And guess what? Sometimes you're not even going to know when God is speaking through you. Just like when Peter 
Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter goes, some say you're this, some say you're that, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, good boy, God told you that. And Peter's going, really? See, he, he just prophesied. God spoke to him, and God spoke through him, and Peter didn't even know it. Jesus had to tell him that was from God. And see, that's the nature of living in a, in a living, dynamic relationship with God. He is speaking to us all the time. Because that's what shepherds do. They're communicating with their sheep constantly. He is a person, and he's brought us into a personal, vital relationship with him. And many times God is speaking through us, and we may not even realize it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But that is the birthright of every single Christian. To be in that kind of vital relationship with God, he speaks to you and he speaks through you. So in that sense, prophecy is much broader across the church than maybe anything we ever thought about. Because every single Christian is in that place in Christ where he can hear from the Lord and speak as from the Lord. And so it's much broader than maybe anything we thought, but in another sense, less significant, in that it has no authority for another person. Okay? I cannot take what God has said to me and put it on you as though I have authority over you. Now, as a church elder, in some matters, but again, basically we're just applying God's word and not a new revelation. And any new revelation, anything that God, I may think that God is saying to me today, if it contradicts God's word, I didn't hear from God. And God's word always supersedes in authority anything I think God is saying to me today. So there is no new revelation that has the same authority as scripture. It is absolutely underneath scripture. Two minutes according to the clock on the wall. These are not the big things here. This is all interesting and it's important. Biggest thing in this passage is that this church, all the believers everywhere Paul went, were more concerned with Paul's personal safety than he was himself. And they were putting a priority on personal safety. And Paul put the priority on doing God's will. And he says, I'm prepared to die. And I, he says, I'll suffer. And I'll die. Go back and read Philippians 1. Paul says it is a privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And then in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that he counted it again, his ambition to lay hold not only of the resurrection power of Christ, but to also fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. It's not necessarily the mindset of the church today any more than it was in the first century. I'm surprised, though, at the first century. Because these people were getting martyred and persecuted left and right. And yet, even under that, their temptation was to want to save Paul, preserve Paul, keep him alive, avoid this. And Paul's going, since when does a Christian life mean that I'm not going to suffer? Christ told me from the day that I was saved that I was going to suffer. And I'm not going to avoid it. Suffering and death. Not, he's, he's not choosing suffering and death. He's choosing Jesus. And if Jesus has suffering and death, then God's will be done is what Paul's saying. Does that apply to us? 
we're off everything that comes up, every conversation, I'm exaggerating, but it seems like it, almost every conversation and topic we're having is about COVID. Because that's where we're living. And I understand that. I hope, though, that God is refining our hearts during this time. And that we are truly thinking about what is important. And that each of us can say like Paul, I am willing not only to suffer, but I am ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that COVID or any other potential thing would not keep us away from what God wants to do. As I said at the beginning, not part of the sermon, but just at the beginning, we should take consideration for other people's health and not, uh, not put them at risk unnecessarily. And if I have COVID, I'm not going to come to church and preach. But I don't think the prospect of getting COVID, when I don't have any other thing to be concerned about, because I'm generally healthy, should keep me from going to come into church or leaving my house. I feel like that we as Christians ought to be the people who are doing all that we can to carry on life normally, to inject normalcy into an insane world right now. Because it's insane what's going on today. There's never been a time where we've, where we've reacted to a plague or a virus as we are today. And I hope that as Christians, it's not because we are afraid to die um, or afraid of getting sick. I understand there's other issues that need to be considered, but in our own hearts before God, I trust that God's using this in each of our lives to see what's motivating us. Is it self-protection and fear? Or have we put that aside and said, my life belongs to Jesus, and I want his will to be done, whatever that is. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your wonderful care over us. And I am reminded constantly, Lord, that, that we have no control, no dominion over our own health. We stand or fall because of your sustaining grace or the withdrawal of it. We can do everything we want, God, to try and protect ourselves, but our protection is only in Jesus. And I pray that we would have your wisdom, that we would listen to your spirit, and that we would be obedient to you. And that our lives, God, would not be ruled by fear um, or complacency, but that we would trust you and walk with you in obedience and do exactly what you would have us to do. And I thank you, God, for the fact that you are alive today and you are still leading your people, speaking to your people. And it is a privilege, God, to walk through this world having a living, resurrected shepherd who is guiding his sheep and protecting them. And I thank you that we are not as though in this world who are lost without a shepherd, don't know where to go, what they're doing, and, and are misguided and living in the dark. But we've been brought out of death into life, into light, and we thank you, God, for your absolute loving commitment to us to keep us and to guide us throughout this life. In Christ's name, amen.